Heavenly Father, you are good, and we worship you. We thank you, and we praise you. Meet us here today in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. We're going to continue our series today in the book of Philippians. This is part two of 16. And I'm going to be reading to you today from Philippians chapter 1, verses 12 through 18. Today, we have a message entitled, The Joy in Pain. And it is the hallmark message of our whole series called Joy and Pain. There it is. Come on now. There it is. Today we're going to talk about Paul's proper perspective on pain and struggle. Philippians chapter 1, verse 12, reads like this. I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel, so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Some, indeed, preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others do it from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I'm put here for the defense of the gospel, while the former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. What then? Only in that every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. The big idea for you today in this message is this. There is something beautiful happening in the midst of your trouble. Let me say it more definitively so that you can think about your trouble. There is something beautiful happening right in the middle of that. I'm reminded of a poem by Maya Angelou, written in the same year as her autobiography, entitled The Same, I Know Why the Caged Bird Sings. It reads like this, a free bird leaps on the back of the wind and floats downstream to the current ends and dips his wing in the orange sun's rays. He dares to claim the sky. But a bird that stalks down his narrow cage can seldom see through his bars of rage. His wings are clipped and his feet are tied. So he opens his throat to sing. The cage bird sings with a fearful trill of things unknown but longed for still. And his tune is heard on the distant hill for the cage bird sings of freedom. The free bird thinks of another breeze and the trade winds soft through the sighing trees and the fat worms waiting on dawn-bright lawn, and he names the sky his own. But a caged bird stands on the grave of dreams. His shadow shouts and a nightmare scream, his wings clipped and his feet are tied, so he opens his throat to sing. The caged bird sings with a fearful trill of things unknown but longed for still, and his tune is heard on a distant hill, for the cage bird sings of freedom. When Maya Angelou wrote these words, she wrote about the plague of racism in our country. She wrote about the difference between those who are afforded the ability to roam as they please and those whose life is limited 
And in that pain, she speaks of a hope that simply cannot be contained. She says, though his wings are clipped and his feet are tied, the cage bird still sings. When, when I first read this poem, I was in ninth grade, and, uh, and I remember, I, I fancied myself a little bit of a singer, and I remember thinking like, oh, that is, she hit it. Because if you've ever sung, whether you're good or bad, because we got some good singers, and then some of you, when you sing, it's just you and Jesus that like it, you know? <laughs> but if you've ever had that moment when you really belt, do you know what I'm talking about? And Ty points the mic at you, and you're like, here's my tryout. Yo, I'm never gonna let, you know, you do that? Have you ever had that moment? You know that there's something that stirs in your soul when you just begin to let all of you out into the world. She writes this poem, and I promise you, it to me, I see it because I see everything through the lens of Scripture. It sounds like the perfect echo of the Apostle Paul when he writes right here in this part of the letter. I mean, we did the greeting last week, but it's in this moment right now where the apostle begins to shift and speak to the very core of his teaching. If I could, you know, if I could meld the two worlds I love so much, I almost wish that Paul was to start this phrase by saying, fellas, I know why the cage bird sings. You remember that he writes this letter with chains on. Who better to know what it's like to be someone whose mouth cannot be tied, though his hands be bound? His aim for us today is to say, whatever has you locked in and in bondage, God is going to bring beauty through it. I want to break this text down for you in just three sections, verses 12 through 14. We're going to talk about the best parts, about the worst parts of your life. Verses 15 through 17, we're going to talk about how sometimes it's hard to know what's good and what's bad. Amen? But in the last part, verse 18, I'm just going to remind you that no matter what happens in the end, our God wins. Let me read verse 12 through 14 with you real quick. The best parts of the worst part. He says, I want you to know, brothers, he writes to his friends in the church in Philippi that he created. He says, I want you to know that what happened to me has really done a mighty thing. It's, it's served to advance the gospel. What's cool about this text is that he, he, he addresses what he's been through, but he doesn't seem to harp on what he's been through. You should know that the Apostle Paul suffered greatly for the advancement of the gospel. I mean, when he says, you should know that what has happened to me, it's one of the most loaded sentences in scripture. What he could say is, you should know that I've been stoned, lashed 40 minus one. I've been stripped wrecked three times. I've been beaten. I've been in prison. I even got bit by a snake. I mean, things were not going well for me over the last several years. And now I'm locked in a prison. And I got to tell you, things are going great for Jesus. You see the shift? He says, I got to be honest with you. I mean, you know, my life is like falling apart, but man, the eternal life that people are finding, it's just, it's thriving. What I love here is that the apostle Paul demonstrates that he is so consumed by the mission of Jesus through his life that he almost can't even see what's in front of him. He says, it's really great that I'm in prison. He's transfixed. 
on what God has put before him. He says this. He says, it's, it's been so good, it's become known throughout the entire imperial guard and all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. What he's saying in this moment, you should know that in this season of imprisonment, some scholars think he was either in Ephesus, Caesarea, but most evidence suggests that he's in Rome, which means that while he's in prison, he's not in prison without some supervision. In fact, he's being watched by the imperial guard in shifts of four or six hours, depending on the historical documents, what it means means is that every few hours a new guard is chained directly to Paul. Put yourself in the shoes of that guard who has to go sit next to Paul who just can't stop talking about Jesus. Right? And you're like, what time do you work? I go to four. I'm, at, I'm four to eight tonight. And they're like, who do you got? And he's like, uh, um, let's see. It's, uh, it's Paul. It's Paul. Oh my gosh. I mean, the, the, what Paul is saying is like, you got to be, you got to check this out. Like everything's, it's just amazing, right? Like my life is falling apart, but get this, even though I'm in jail and they got me in isolation, they send me someone every four hours that I can convert to Christ. It's amazing. <laughs> every one of them is a Christian now. And because they can't go anywhere because they're tied to me, I just do the whole thing. We talk about their life and every one of them leaves full of Jesus. Paul is modeling for us exactly how we are to face our biggest struggles. Paul in this moment is in, he's in deep. And yet he simply won't stop talking about not only what he's been through, but how God, him, how God got him through and how God can do the same for you. Imagine that in your worst hour, in your darkest day, that you were marked, the hallmark of your character was to say, my God shall supply all of my need and he's gonna get his glory in this too. Paul is saying in this moment, I need you to be mindful of what you say so that what you see doesn't limit what you say because it's what he says that matters most. And if you face insurmountable odds, then you should be the kind of Christian who can speak about an impossible God. Amen. He says, it's boldness of my story that has started to make new believers. And he says, and it's not boldness of me. It's boldness of the trouble I've been in. He's modeling not only the ability for you to echo Jesus, to speak the words of the Lord in your life in good season and in bad season, but hear me, ready? To be honest, open, and transparent about your story. Paul is not in this prison only talking about his victories. Amen? In fact, if we know anything about Paul, if you read any of his letters or even the book of Acts, the guy kind of loves to talk about his troubles, like a lot. He tells the story about being the worst persecutor of the Christians all the time. He calls himself the worst sinner. Even when a lot of us are like, I don't know, Paul. He loves to relish in his own failures so that when he writes the words and says, when I am weak, then he is strong for his grace is sufficient. It models and it amplifies just how good God is to bad people. So that when you meet somebody who's in their own struggle, who thinks themselves also bad or unworthy of love, they can say the phrase that we long to say, which is if Jesus would do it for them, then maybe just maybe for me. 
the best part about the worst part for Paul is that God's not done and he's working even in those moments. I want you to think about your worst part right now. Worst struggle you've ever been through. Maybe you're in it right now. Maybe you're in that struggle right now. And you notice that when you're in these really hard times and in these struggles, one of our tendency, maybe you're like me, is when I'm really having a rough go, my, my tendency is to button my lip. Do you do this? Do you get real quiet? Do you get like just, I don't have, I'm just, I don't say anything. I don't have a solution for it. I, 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 and there's two kinds of people. You're either that kind of person who just shuts down or you're the kind of person who just lashes out. And, you're, and you, you lose it. And, and, and everybody within earshot is in harm's way. Amen? Some of you are laughing. You're like, yeah, guilty. And Paul in this moment, he says, both of those are totally normal, but they're, they're, not, they're not the prescription for seeing the best in your worst. He says it's in this moment that we get an opportunity to preach to ourselves that our God is bigger than our circumstances and to share through those circumstances who that God is. He says, verse 14, most of the brothers have begun confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, and so many more are bold to speak the word without fear because they see Paul in prison speaking the word without fear, and they're like, dude, he's in jail. <laughs> I certainly can talk to my wife about Jesus, right? But the challenge with that is, um, you know, sometimes we don't really know how things are going to work out. I, I could tell you that God's good in the midst of your pain and in the midst of your struggle. But if you're in the midst of it, that's really hard to see. Amen? I mean, most of us, we really only know that God's been faithful in the middle of trouble when we look back on previous trouble. Right? And isn't it bizarre that you can look back on hundreds of seasons when life was bad but God was good and still not be convinced in this moment right now? Isn't that crazy? You can be like, oh, he was faithful there. He saved us there. We didn't die there. He protected us. He did all these things and it was wonderful, but this one's probably much too big for him. <laughs> do you do that? I do it all the time on little things, little things. Like I think our garbage disposal went out last night and I'm positive this is going to wreck us. I do it. I get like so worked up over silly stuff. It didn't work. I couldn't get it to work. I just went to bed. Asked my wife. I told her, I was like, everything's broken. I'm going to bed. <laughs> so little, but so defeated by small circumstance. It's so easy for so many of us to get confused or bewildered because of trouble and pain. Amen? Paul says, you got to see the best in the worst, but I want you to understand that sometimes it's hard to tell what's good and bad. Sometimes it's hard for us to get our bearings to see if this thing is a big thing or a little thing, if this, is, if this person is for us or against us, if we're going to make it or not. Sometimes we just, we don't know. I was thinking the other day about my first apartment when I got into recovery. Um, it's over now uh, 11 years. And, uh, yeah, yeah. yeah. 11 years, nine months, and eight days. And uh, about, about a year and a half into my recovery, I finally got a, an apartment. I've been living in my parents' basement, shout out to mom and dad. And, um, and I got this apartment, 
and it was it, it was a it was a, a apartment that didn't do a credit check. Come on, somebody, hey! <laughs> and their deposit was minuscule, and I was like, "This is the Lord." And it was in a subsidized housing complex. So about 70% of the residents there were subsidized housing and, 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 and the neighborhood was really rough. And, um, and, and I was, they were supposed to have the, the apartment ready for me on a Friday. And I went and I was like, I'm ready to get my keys. And they're like, hold on, we got to replace the carpet. And I was like, oh, okay. And they said, come back Monday. We should have the carpet installed and, and we'll get it for you. And I was like, that's great. Thanks for doing the carpet. Do you guys do this at every you know, new one that you get? And the guy, dead face, looked at me and he goes, no, there's just a lot of blood in there. And, um, <laughs> and I remember being like, I'm getting an apartment. Awesome. <laughs> yes. We got into the apartment and, you know, it, was, it, was, it wasn't great. It wasn't great. You know, it didn't have, it didn't have, it was, it was awesome. Oh, it was awesome. And I remember having all of these reasons to, like, not like it. Like, it was a rough neighborhood and our neighbors were loud and they smoked weed every night. And I was worried that my kids were going to get high. Like, it was, we had rough, it was rough, but it was, it was awesome because God had given us this thing, Right? And yet sometimes there would be gunfire in the back alley at night. And I remember being in the moments where I was like, I know this is good, but that's not good, right? Is that good? That's not good. Because I just couldn't figure out. Because even sometimes when you get out of a bad situation into a good situation, it's never a perfect situation. And you start to wonder, like, is this as good as it gets? I mean, I, I, I'm glad I'm not there. Don't get me wrong. I love you. I'm so grateful that I'm not, I'm not without a home. I'm just not sure this is the best place for us, right? Paul writes about this in, in this text right here. He says, you know, when I was sharing all that the Lord had been doing in my life, people had been converting and they'd been growing in their boldness. Verse 15, he says, now some of them, they preach like against me out of envy and rivalry, but others, they do it in goodwill. I mean, it's really cool. I get to watch them. He says, the latter, they do it out of love and they know that I'm here for the defense of the gospel. But there, there's a few of them. They proclaim Christ and they do it selfishly and they think that they're trying to hurt me. Man, Paul is speaking to that moment when you and I are like, we're like coming out and we're just not sure who's on our side. I met with some people this week and they had shared with me how almost impossible it is for them to ask help. Are you like that? Like you just can't ask for help? A couple hands. Some of us, we ask for help and others, we're like, I got this. Even when you absolutely know you don't got this, right? And we do that primarily because we've been hurt before. We've been hurt when we were vulnerable and we were walking through a season that was difficult. And, 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 and then we, we shared that we needed some assistance and people took advantage of that, right? And that causes confusion because you, you wonder and you worry that even if things are good, maybe they're not good. Maybe those people are with me for a different reason. Paul, Paul addresses this. He says, it's so interesting. I've been sharing the gospel with boldness and other people have been emulating me. But what's bizarre is I'm not really sure that everyone has the right motives. He says, for some of them, it seems as though what God has done in and through me has inspired me. And they're leading others to do exactly like me, which is introduce the king of kings to a world that's dying for him and then there's others and it's like they're out to hurt me and I think what he's doing in this moment is to say I need you to understand that your hope is to be in God and God alone and that you can't control anyone 
You know, when you're really trying to get things together and you start getting a grasp of your life, maybe you finally get out of debt and finally dealing with some of your financial struggles. You finally, you finally get the job you want. You finally get to a place where you get some momentum under your belt. Maybe some of the uncertainty that you've been facing for a generation is now coming to a place of solid foundation and you get a desire to sort of make sure everything works for you. And Paul is in this moment trying to remind us like, hey, remember, not everyone is on the same page as you. And it's not your job to get everyone on the same page. Paul is saying in this moment, I can't control them. I can't control anybody. I can't control the outcome and I can't control their demeanor. I can't control what happens. I can really only manage me and worship him. That's what Paul says. He's like, all I have is this and that. And he says, "Um, that's all I need. I want to tell you in my own personal life, I've gotten to that place before where, where it all fell down and recognized that like, I, I, don't, I don't have any influence and I shouldn't because at that point in my life, I shouldn't have had any influence, but I was really only able to focus on this and then to worship him. And I discovered something that I know many of you have discovered, which is that the two are not mutually exclusive. My own personal character, my integrity, the way that I deal with myself and the way that I deal with my God are inexplicably intertwined. Paul might echo the same thing that our worshipers would tell you from their own personal experiences. I don't manage myself, but also worship God. Turns out the more I worship God, the more he manages me. It's like whenever I put him on the throne of my life and say, I'm, I'm in prison, but you're still good. He says, great, guess what? I'm the God who breaks every chain. And I say, you know what? I feel like I'm really struggling, but you're perfect and holy, and I give you that. And he says, wonderful, I'm a deliverer. I'm the banner, I fight for you. You get to the place in your life where you're like, here it is, it's not very good, but it's all yours because you're good and all I want is you. And he says, that's all I've been waiting for. Now, now we can move forward as a team. But so many of us, so many of us, we separate the two. I got this, and then Sunday I'll get you. I'll handle this. Nine to five is me. Look, I'm fine. But if I need a little encouragement, I'll show up to church. I mean... Can, I, can we just do it for a second? Like, that's how most of us do it. I meet people all the time, and they say, I love to come to church. I feel so good. I mean, I, you know, it wanes a little bit, but on Sundays, I get filled, and I want to just grab you with all of the love I can muster and say, why are you settling for one day? Why is it that the only thing you want from the Lord is the very least why do you say, I just need a couple of hours and hopefully I can carry on when his invitation is that you would be wrapped in his loving arms each and every moment. The Bible says we go from glory to glory. The invitation is that every day, no matter how bad, is still good because he's on the throne. Yes. Amen. Most of us are still having so many bad days because that day and that day and that day, he's not on the throne. And because he's not on the throne, we run into these, these days and seasons and weeks where it's like it's good and it's bad. One minute I'm up and I'm down. It's like all of a sudden I'm bipolar in every situation. I'm struggling and winning simultaneously and I'm not sure what's what. If I'm laughing or crying, I can't tell. You've been there before? You're just like, I hate him. <laughs> I don't know why I'm laughing. 
Paul says, sometimes the struggle you face is not knowing where you are. You know, as our church has been growing, I've been getting a chance to meet a lot of new faces. And, um, and I, I always wonder what you say about this church to your friends. Do you know what I mean? I always wonder when people are like, where do you go? And you say Beacon, and they're like, where's that? And you're like, meets at a comedy club. I, was, I wish I could be in that room, right? <laughs> I want to hear as you explain, like, what? It's weird, and, um, and it's small, and it's, it's sweet. I don't know if that's what you say. I hope it is. I'm just trying to plant some seeds. <laughs> the reason I ask what you say, I wonder what you say, is because people ask me about our church all the time. In fact, but you don't know this maybe, but pastors talk to each other about each other's churches all the time. All the time I meet a pastor and they'll ask me the questions that we do, which is like, so how, how are things, right? We do that, like, how are you holding up, right? <laughs> oh, I'm and then we do this next question, which is this. So where are you guys at right now? This is what pastors say. Where are you guys at? And if you're a church plant, it means where are you meeting? And then the next question is, and how's that going? And what they're asking is how many people are coming? Now, sometimes they ask the right way. We, I got to preach at CCU this week, and, and Pastor Dave, who's their, their dean of spiritual formation there, he's been tracking our journey. He's been inviting me to speak for almost five years, so he knows that, like, I went from young adults pastor to inner city pastor and now to a church planner, and so he asked me this week, so how's it going? And I knew he meant, like, where are the numbers, but he meant it from an earnest place, like, you know, are you eating dinner every night, you know, that sort of thing. And I'm like, you know, Pastor, it's going good. He said, how many? And I said, I, you know, I don't, we don't really count. I think, I think roughly we're about 400 people who call it their home church. And every week we're maybe 100 to 200. I don't, I don't know. Right? And he's like, that's fantastic. And by all measures, that makes us a small church. And I'm really starting to love being a part of a small church. And I share with him because I know he cares. But you know that I meet with other pastors? And they're like, so, and they'll just tell you, like, so, so how big is your church, bro? And I didn't get the same sense of nurturing from them in that question that I did from Pastor Dave at CCU. I know what they're asking, which is the same thing that someone asks you when they meet you at a network event, which is like, so what do you do? Because what they're really asking, so how much do you make? And so these pastors, they'll ask, like, so how many people are you? And when I can sense that they're trying to, like, measure up with me, right, I'll just be like, I think we're at 15 people so far. It's really great. Because then immediately their countenance fails. We're not competitors. And they're like, oh, man, that's so good. God's doing great. And then all of a sudden they care for me. (laughs) (laughs) Or I'll just tell them the truth. Man, I don't count numbers. I don't care about numbers. I don't count the people. I count on the people. I don't care how many of you come. I care that you came. I care that you're here. Because, like, I love being a part of this church. I don't care how, seat, how filled the seats are, ready? I care how filled your heart is. So when people say, how big is your church? I say, it's the biggest church you've ever seen. What do you mean? Well, I don't know how many people come, but every one of them is transformed from the inside out, and I have seen gangsters turn into godly men. I've seen prostitutes get delivered. I've seen drug dealers ditch the dope and come here. I've seen homeless people invite people to their home. I've watched people who've been ostracized and pushed out, and they said, this is where I found the Lord. I've seen more things in this church than any mega church could ever see. Do you know why? Because we care about each other. 
we don't have much of a light show. <laughs> Which means you came for the gospel of Jesus Christ. Amen? Amen? We do this to each other, don't we? In good times and in bad times. We confuse each other. We're not sure who's on our side and who's with us. I want you to understand that Paul says the same thing. He says, some of them are doing good. Some of them are on my side. Some are not, and I don't know what to do about it. But you know what? I don't care. In verse 18, he says this last line. He says, what then? What then? In only that in every way, whether they fake it or they mean it, Christ is preached. He says, and for that, I rejoice. I might put it like this. In the end, no matter what happens, no matter how painful this season is, no matter what you face or what you lose or who hurts you or turns their back on you, and even if you lose everything, and like Job, the people who love you say, why don't you just curse God and die? Even if all hell breaks loose, ready? Here's the promise, guaranteed. In the end, God will win. He'll always win. Always. So the secret to my success is not that I succeed, but just that I put my trust in him. Paul says, what do I care if they're preaching nicely about me or preaching mean against me? I don't care. All I know is that people are getting converted. What he's saying in this moment is, I don't, I can't, it's not my concern what happens with other people's lives. It's not my worry about what they think or their demeanor or where they're headed. I only care about the life lived through me. He says, it's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. He says, All I think, the only thing that I can do is give Jesus to everybody. And in the end, we win. You know, every, every time I preach, especially the hard stuff, uh, part of my prayer as a pastor has been foolish <laughs> to say to the Lord, I always say this, and I regret it every time I say, you can do whatever you want with me. And I always, I regret it because he's like, you sure? And I'm like, wait, why? Why are you asking that, right? But I've always prayed that. I've always just said, look, I'm going to be honest with you. Like, I should have died 11 years ago, but, but you got me. And so you got me, all of me. You can do whatever you want. And every single time I preach a hard thing, like one of these, these messages where I tell you, even in your worst, God's still good. God always gives me a chance to live it out. And this week, it was like, man, a hard week. You know when you have a hard week where you're just like, I'm not even going to go to church. Do you know? <laughs> do you do that? I know you do that. Don't worry. I don't count your seat. I just know when you're not here. Um, I don't have that luxury. Like, I don't have the chance to just bail on it. And this week was super hard. And I had one of those long drives where you're like, you start off arguing with the Lord and then you're just quiet for like miles, you know? And, uh, and I got a bad report. We got, you know, some news and just didn't love it. And I got frustrated about the bad news and I missed the good news. Uh, we got like a, we got a letter and I read it and it, it painted me in a poor picture. Um, and I was offended because I'm human. 
but at the bottom it had like this really good thing <laughs> and I missed it because I was blinded by only what had hurt me and I and I, I read this scripture again today and this morning just to make sure and I I recognize that what Paul is doing is he's writing hmm, a letter in chains and he's facing only walls and bars and seeing only a man armed to the teeth whose job is to hold him or to kill him and Paul can't see any of it Paul only sees the glory that is to come from that which he pens to his friends. And I'm reminded of how many times we are blinded by our circumstances, blinded by only what we see, what is immediate, this pain, this instance, this circumstance, and we fail to do what we're called to do, which is see through it to the other side. Paul says, um, what then? I imagine that he's essentially saying, I can't even worry about that, and I won't be blinded by what I see because I won't let it determine what I say. In every way, in every way, my God will eventually get his way. And my job is to just get out of the way so he can lead the way. Today, I want to commemorate this kind of a teaching with communion. Paul, of all of the epistle writers, knows this so perfectly that it is through pain and through struggle and suffering that God gets his greatest glory. And he knows it so well because on the road to Damascus, he was blinded and then confronted by the God-man Jesus who himself knew that the only way to my greatest glory is that I might suffer and die. You should have the elements in your hand. If you need communion supplies, would you just raise your hand real quick? We'll see if we can get you one. We need a couple in the back. Justin needs one, I think. And then you know what? I need one. Do you have one? Do you have some over here, guys? I'm a we're going to take communion in this moment because I want to, I want to, I want to really put this home. I want you to think for a second about your struggle. You've been probably in it this whole time, thinking about what, what hurts you. How in the world do you open these? Are you with me on this? Okay, got it. Your supplies. One wafer. And juice. And I want you to see how small they are. Oh, my God. You're thinking today about the struggle that you've been through, the breaking, the hurting, the pain. Maybe they left. Maybe you lost. Maybe you can't stop failing. And in those moments, that pain seems like the biggest thing you would ever face. You may have asked yourself this week or in the weeks preceding, how, how am I ever going to move through this? And it's Jesus. It's Jesus who answers the question, how will you make it through this? And he answers it by modeling it, by living it. He told his disciples on the night before he was betrayed, he said, um, this is my body. 
it will be broken for you. I will suffer for you. And this is my blood, the blood of the new covenant that says, in me you shall have eternal life. Before he gives them an opportunity to partake in this moment, he says, I would that you would each closely examine yourselves. The apostle echoes the same thing. Before we take in the sacred act of communion, the Lord asks us to ask ourselves if there's anything in us that needs to be remedied, anything that needs to be laid before the Father, any sin left unforgiven. I'll give you just a moment to consider that. And then Jesus, ever so perfectly, he took the bread and he broke it. And it's our custom to break the bread to be reminded that his body was broken on that cross. And you might be reminded that when it feels like your life is breaking apart, well, that's just about the perfect place to be in for Jesus to save you. Take, eat the body of Christ. After they had eaten, he presented the cup, the cup of his blood. It's our custom that we lift the cup above our head, not so high, Jerome gets tired, but just high enough that you remember that our whole life is under the blood and were he not killed for us, there'd be no way home. Take, drink. Jesus models for us and invites us to an understanding that says, no matter what you face, no matter how bad it gets, I will never leave you nor forsake you. I know what you've been through. I felt what you feel. I've hurt. I've lacked. I've suffered. And I did it unto death that when I got up, you could get up. And Paul might say, and in that, I rejoice. Amen? Would you do me a favor? Would you stand to your feet? Let's worship together as a family.